currently, we are in the middle of a sermon series exploring what it means to love one another. Now, if I were to ask you simply, should we love one another? I imagine the overwhelming response would be yes. But if I were to follow that up with how, how should we love one another? How, are we, how ought we love one another? I would, I would guess that we would be puzzled and confused. Well, the Bible uh, not only tells us to love one another, but it gives us practical instructions on how we can love one another. For instance, these are just a few practical expressions, outward expressions of loving one another. Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Instruct one another. Comfort one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Show hospitality to one another. These are all outward expressions of how we as a church can love one another. And what we've done is, as a congregation, we've boiled all of these practical instructions down into three actions. We boiled them down simply into three actions. And the first, we said, let's be present with one another. Let's be present. You know, all the things that we talked about here, uh, these instructions, all of these things are impossible to do if we are not present with one another. To love in this way requires that we are engaged with one another. To love in this way means that we are involved in each other's lives. You see, this, this type of love that Scripture speaks of goes beyond the Sunday morning surface that we are so accustomed to. For us to love and to be loved in these ways means we have to make ourselves available for these opportunities to arise. For instance, this past Friday at our first summer CG, uh, we studied the issue of forgiveness. We know well that the Bible tells us to uh, forgive one another, uh, just as Christ has forgiven us. The Bible tells us to ask for forgiveness, to seek forgiveness. However, for us to forgive implies that we are in deep relationships with one another. To forgive means that we are constantly rubbing shoulders with one another, that we've opened ourselves up to one another, that we've been vulnerable with one another, we've spent time with one another, that it eventually leads to disappointment, misunderstanding, and hurt. When the Bible says forgive one another, it's assuming that we are deep in relationship with each other, that these misunderstandings can occur. And in those moments, the Bible says forgive. You know, I left Bible study on Friday thinking, Okay, we just studied forgiveness, but outside of our family, right, the relationships that we don't get to choose, when was the last time that we actually had to forgive someone? 
Because if we don't have someone to forgive, if we don't have someone to ask for forgiveness, could it be that we are not doing relationships the way that God had intended? That we are not deep in relationship with one another to the point that we are offending one another, to the point that we are hurting one another, that we are not present with each other enough where forgiveness is, there is no opportunity for. You know, if our interactions, church, is just here at the surface level, one day a week, then we'd be a cordial church, we'll be a friendly church, and there would be nothing or no opportunities to offend or nothing to be offended by. The most that we'll fight over is parking and donuts during refreshments. There would be no opportunity to really be hurt and to practice forgiveness. You know, for me, in some sense, that is the dream scenario as a pastor of the church, where people just come to church, they smile, and they leave. And that means there are no fights and no need for conflict resolution. But when you think about it more, when I think about it more, it's actually the worst case because it means that we're not rubbing shoulders enough. It means that there are no opportunities to forgive. It means that there are no opportunities for us to know and become more like Jesus. It means that there are no opportunities for us to love. And so the encouragement is, yes, be present. Be present to the point where you can practice these things. The second action we talked about was to pursue one another. Love always seeks out. Love is never passive. Love is never passive-aggressive. Love is always active. As we all know well, the opposite of love is not hate but it is indifference, not caring. And all of these expressions of love that we talked about, not only do they require that we be present with one another, but it also requires that we be proactive with one another. And so the encouragement, the challenge, was for us to pursue one another. You know, there's a story that I heard about a new believer uh, that Francis that Francis Chan shared many, many years ago. It happened at his church when he was still pastoring this this mega, mega church in California. He says that one day there was this uh, member who came to his church. He was a former gang member, but he had received Jesus, he had encountered Jesus, he had confessed Jesus, and he was baptized into the church. And the church was ecstatic. The church was so happy. Here is this former gang member who left his life, his former life, and now has joined the body of Christ. The church was excited. The church was happy. He was present in the church, but after a few months, he started to disappear. They noticed that he wasn't showing up, that something was wrong with him, and so one of the pastors called him up and said, hey, we've noticed that we haven't been seeing you around. We've noticed that you've been different. And uh, the former gang member replied in this way. He said, you know, I thought when I was being baptized that I was actually joining a new family, a family just like my former gang. He said, I thought my baptism was like me being initiated, me being jumped into a gang. 
and I was going to be a part of this family. But he said, I realized that you know, the more I try to be present, the more I try to seek after people, they found me to be obtrusive, they found me to be bothersome, they found, found me to be an, uh, annoying. And no one really came after me. He said, you know, I realized that I was wrong about the church. The church is really not a family. We just come and spend time just at the surface level and we leave. And there the, the pastors of that church were shocked. They thought, oh my goodness, here is this former gang member who understands church better than we do. You know, I, I'll never forget that story because it, it, it's a picture of what we are supposed to be as a body. It's what God is preparing us to be. It's what God has in store for us to be. This is God's vision for His church, that we love one another, that we deeply be involved and engage in one another's lives, where these opportunities to forgive, to care, to love, to serve would arise. Today, we will go one step further, one step further, and we will talk, discuss the third action, and that is to pray for one another. Now, uh, this is pedagogical. I, I ordered it in this way uh, on purpose because I think the third action, the praying part, is the most difficult. You see, even if your heart is not in it, you can still be present and you can still pursue. You can somewhat fake it. But I think you can't fake praying for one another. You can't fake it because the one whom you are praying to knows. I don't know if you've ever tried praying for someone that you don't like. Have you ever prayed for someone that you hated? Someone that you were harboring bitterness or hatred towards? Have you ever tried that before? It's one of the most difficult things. It's hard praying for someone that you don't like because the one whom you're praying to loves that individual. And it's so hard to go before God with that hatred. Today's passage, Ephesians 6, implicitly, it addresses this issue. It addresses this difficulty. Ephesians chapter 6 is Paul's concluding words in his letter to the church at Ephesus. And the context is that of spiritual warfare. Paul, here in this passage, he reveals the reality in which we are living. He says this, presently, we are saved by grace through faith. Presently, we are in Christ. Presently, we are forgiven and we are redeemed. And so, until Jesus returns, until he comes back, he says, stand firm. That is the command, stand firm. Now, in this context of war or spiritual warfare, Paul makes clear in verse 12 who the enemy is. This is what he says. In this war, this metaphorical world, uh, verse 12, if we look, this is what he says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says, do you know who your enemy is? It is Satan. I think this is really, really important because Paul, in, all throughout Ephesians, he spoke on various relationships. 
He talked about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, chapter 2. He talked about relationships within the church, chapter 4. He talked about the relationship between husband and wife, chapter 5. He talks about the relationship between employee and employer, chapter 5. And he talks about the relationship between children and parent, chapter 6. Virtually, he he touches upon all the relationships that we are in. And not once does Paul say, hey, do you know who your enemy is? It's your boss. It's your parents. It's that annoying, annoying church member who sings really loud and out of tune. He does not point the finger at anyone, but he says, our enemy is not flesh and blood, but the rulers, authorities, principalities of evil in this present world. After writing an entire letter about relationships, at the end he says, Be on watch, be alert, because we have an enemy. And it's not each other. It's not each other. I recall a few years ago, uh, I was working on, uh, I was working uh, with a committee uh, for this really large church or gathering of churches in New York. Uh, It was a very eclectic group, young and old, uh, various backgrounds, and we were trying to plan this uh, gathering. Now, it, was, it happened during the summer, um, during the, the hot, hot summer, and the deadline was coming up, and there were some roadblocks, and we faced frustrations. And so, as a result of that, we, our patience started to wear thin. We started to become terse with each other, and our anger and our disappointment and our frustration started to boil over, and we started to argue. I'm not sure if you've ever saw a group of ordained men argue. Uh, It is the most passive-aggressive fight (laughs) you can imagine. There is sarcasm flying everywhere. Everything is sarcastic. You don't know what is true. (laughs) You're like, wait, what a second. Uh, Cheap shots left and right. Yes, pastors can be sometimes very nasty. And while we were arguing, uh, going back and forth, this one young pastor, He speaks up and he says, hey, I don't think we should be fighting. We're not each other's enemies. Our enemy is Satan. And essentially, he was quoting this verse, uh, Ephesians 6, 12. And I'll tell you, that one statement, just like that, it united us. Because we all turned to him and we said, shut up. (laughs) Shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, Paul, he understands the difficulty of human relationships. You've got to imagine, Paul, his generation was the first generation to see Jews and Gentiles come together. He was a pastor during the time when the church was trying to figure out how can we have Jews and Gentiles, two groups of people who just hated each other, how can we have them come together and be one? I mean, he... Imagine, I mean, just, just think of, um, you know, think of uh, white Americans and black Americans during the race, race, racial segregation, the 1950s and 60s. Uh, think of the, the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda uh, in 1994 when the Civil War just boils over. I mean, Paul did ministry. He led church during the first generation of Jews and Gentiles coming together, two groups who absolutely hated one another, but he makes clear in this letter that the gospel does not divide, but it unites. 
The gospel does not tear down, but it builds up. And he says this ultimately throughout the letter, while we might have different backgrounds, different culture, different languages, different personalities, eccentricities, while we all might be different, he says this, there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He's saying this, while we may all be different, that which is essential, we are united through. I don't know, for those of you who have siblings, you know what this is like, right? You might have a sister or a brother, younger or older, who is just so different from you. And you somehow wonder, how are we even siblings? For those parents with children, you know what this is like. When you have two children who are just so different and you wonder, are they born from the same parents? They are so different. But Paul is saying this, what unites you is greater than what distinguishes you. You know as siblings or as children that even though you might be so different from your sister or your brother, what unites you, being of the same family, is greater than what distinguishes you. And so, Paul, after exhorting the church on how it can stand against the schemes of the devil, Paul, he concludes, he says, take up the full armor of God, and, and Ephesians 6, 18, this is his command to pray. And I want to go through this carefully, but he says this, he says, pray. And look what he says. This is comprehensive. He says this, pray at all times. So he answers the question, when should we pray? And he says, all the time. He also answers the question, um, with, you know, what should we pray for, or, or the manner in which we should pray. How should we pray? And it's with all perseverance. Then, what, um, who should we pray for? For all the saints. And if you look towards the middle, how, what should we be praying for? And it says, with all prayers and all supplications. So when should we pray? All the time. What should we pray for? Everything. How should we pray? With all perseverance. And for whom should we pray? We should pray for everyone. We should pray for everyone. Now, as we're um, thinking about this, how we can pray for one another, how we can love and pray for one another. Let me just give you some practical instructions. I'll give you three practical instructions on how we as a church can pray for one another. First, let me encourage you to first pray for people that you dislike. Pray for people that you don't like. If I were to ask the congregation today, write a list of people that you consistently pray for, then write a list of people that you don't like, that you dislike. After you have written this list, which list do you think would be longer? You see, and what this passage does is this. It takes the first list and it combines it with the second list. It brings the second list, the list of people that we dislike, and it brings it over into the first list. Pray for your enemies and those who persecute you, says Jesus. And the challenge is that our list of people whom we pray for should not be exclusive. 
But as Paul instructs us here, we should pray for all, including the people we dislike, especially the people we dislike. Do you know why I find it hard to pray for people that I struggle with? Well, because I know that when I start praying for that person that I loathe, that I hate, God is going to reveal my heart. He's going to show me the evils in me. And I hate it because when I pray for someone that I don't like, God, He ultimately changes my heart, softens my heart to love Him or her. And sometimes, or most of the time, I don't want that. No, there's a, a well-known prayer uh, by Charles Spurgeon entitled, I Thought. And it's a prayer where he asks God, hey, God, can you grow me in faith? And this is what he says. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answered my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Even more with his own hand, he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue this worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answered prayer for grace and faith. You know, if you pray for people that you dislike, if you pray for people that you hate, the Lord will certainly reveal to us the evils within us, our mistakes, our faults, our backsliding, our wrongdoing. And He would cause us to love that individual because we are praying to Him who loves that person. Now, I wonder, what would happen to the church if the first person that we prayed for was the person that we despised, the person who annoyed us, the person we disliked? God would certainly change our hearts to love that individual. This is the reason why, in verse 18, Paul says, pray at all times in the Spirit he doesn't say, pray at all times in your spirit or in your desires or your feelings, but he says, pray in the Holy Spirit, aligning our hearts and our minds to the heart and the mind of God himself. The second practical in instruction that I, might, uh, that I want to share is pray for the people who you are closest to. So first, pray for people that you dislike. Second, pray for people that you are closest to. Now, I know it sounds like I'm stating the obvious, but I think oftentimes we forget to pray for people whom we love the most. Today is Father's Day. It's an occasion, and we have infant baptism uh, after the message. But let me just address the fathers here in this room. Praying for your family is not primarily the mother's responsibility. Fathers, as the head of your household, 
will you lead your family in prayer? Or are you too busy trying to be a good father to your children that you don't have time to pray and entrust them to their heavenly Father? For those of you who grew up in the church, those of you who were raised in the faith, I know your parents were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. They were flawed, flawed, sinful people. And yes, maybe they were not there, especially if your parents were first-generation immigrants. But I am fairly certain, I can be confident that whatever they lacked for in parenting, they made up in prayer. You know, often I hear immigrant children who were raised in the faith complain about their parents. They talk about their deficiencies, how they didn't spend time, they had no relationship with them, they couldn't speak to them, they didn't provide, that they had to find their own way. I recall this one young adult that I spoke to, that I counseled, who was so angry at his father. He was angry at his father because he didn't play ball with him. He never spent time with him. He said, my dad never taught me, you know, how to talk to girls. He didn't teach me how to drive. He didn't teach me, you know, anything in life. I, be I had to find everything out on my own. He was so angry and so bitter. It was one of those classic, you know, Will Smith moments. Remember Will Smith, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right, where he meets his dad, you know, ain't a damn thing he can ever teach me about how to love my kids, right? Remember that scene? That classic, classic scene. I mean, he was just going on and on. My dad never did this. My dad never did this. But you know, I saw his father at every prayer meeting, at every prayer service. And I witnessed firsthand this man in his 50s pour out his heart to God, pleading for his son. I've seen that father pray consistently like that every day for 12 years. Parents, what you lack as a father and a mother, you can make up through prayer. Because the truth is, we will always lack. But what you lack in prayer, you can never make up with good parenting. So pray for those whom you are closest to. Pray for your closest friends. Are you too busy trying to be a good friend, a good roommate, a good boyfriend, a good girlfriend, a good CG leader, community group leader, that you have no time to intercede for them? I know the summers are filled with social gatherings, with events and meetings and weddings and all of these social events, but have you considered to pray, have you considered praying for the people whom you are going to spend the most time with. So practical instruction, yes, pray for people you dislike. Second, pray for people whom you are closest to because oftentimes we forget. And finally, when you pray, if I can ask you, pray for the church. When Paul says pray for all the saints, he's asking to pray for the church. Would you pray for our church? Would you pray for this local church? congregation? Can we as a church pray for one another? Leonard Ravenhill, a well-known English preacher, said this, the church has many organizers, but few agonizers. Many who pay, but few who pray. 
Many resters, but few wrestlers. Many who are enterprising, but few who are interceding. Tithes may build a church, but tears will give it life. Can we be the church that Jesus had envisioned, interceding on behalf of one another, praying deeply for one another? I leave you with this one encouragement. This is Jesus himself. And I was deeply encouraged by this because in John 17, before Jesus departs, he actually prays for us. He prays for you and I, for this congregation. He says this, I don't ask only for these, he's talking about his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent us. This is Jesus himself praying for one another. May we be a church that loves one another deeply and that prays for people. Let's pray.